This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Rebecca Donner on the true story of the woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler in her new book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days. Rebecca Donner is the author of two critically acclaimed books and her essays, reportage and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Book Forum and Guernica. Her latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, the true story of the woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler. Rebecca, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. So the titular woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler is... Mildred Harnack and that is who the book is about and the first thing to say about her is that you are or she was your great great aunt so tell us first of all well when did you first know that there was a remarkable story behind this person well I first heard her name when I was about nine and I was visiting my great-grandmother in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And uh, she measured my height against the kitchen wall and I stepped back and I looked at all the other marks on the kitchen wall and some were very uh, faint. And I pointed to one and there was an M next to it and I asked, who's that? And she said, oh, well, that's Mildred. And she's your great-great-aunt. And But there was a kind of tension in her voice And she didn't tell me anything more, but I suspected that there was a mystery. And I think that for me, the book began then. I I thought, I wonder, I was intrigued by the mystery of my great, great aunt. I wonder why, wondered why my great grandmother, who was her sister, her eldest sister, why she was reluctant to tell me more about her. And really at that time, I also had ambitions to be a writer. I decided at the age of eight that I would be a writer. So, so this was just a year later after I had announced my, my ambitions. And so it wouldn't be true to say that I decided right then to write a book, of course, about her. But I did decide um, when I was about 16 that I would when my grandmother gave me her letters, Mildred's letters, and urged me to write this book. And I promised her that one day I would. And so obviously you've written other books and, you know, you've had a, a career as a writer. Has this then always been percolating to be written and to come out? Yes, it was always in the background for me, certainly. I, I also was aware that, number one, that my familial connection to Mildred Harnock provided me with access to primary source materials that no one had seen before that, that would enable me to tell a more nuanced story. And I was also aware that I needed to undertake a tremendous uh, you know, additional research uh, and go through uh, a, a tremendous uh, you know, mountain of documents and visit a number of archives. And and indeed I did, uh, basically after my second book was published, I decided, well, now I think I'm going to uh, undertake this. It's time. And I I visited the Gedenkstätte Deutsche Widerstand, the, the German Resistance Memorial Center in Berlin. And I met with the director there and I asked him if I could have access to archives there. I knew that my grandmother had given some materials to them. Um, and he said, of course. And and then I, you know, I, I began to look through some of these documents. And then 
I put it aside, actually, the book um, for another few years. I decided that I still wanted to, I wasn't quite ready yet. I, I wanted to also get a sense of the other archives that may have materials on her because there is an espionage story at the heart of, of this story. And I knew there were files that I needed to access in Moscow, in um, in London, and also in the United States and the National Archives and the Library of Congress. So so I did put it aside, the project, uh, again, to write a novel. And then in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election in, in the United States, I decided that it was time, really time, to write this book. And I put aside the novel and began this book in earnest. And so tell us something about how the book came together in the, in the writing, because as you said, a lot of the material is found in primary sources, letters and diaries of people who were there at the time. But the way that then you have translated a lot of that into the book is the book reads like it's an absolutely thrilling, thrilling adventure story. It's an absolutely gripping read that reads almost like a novel. But obviously yes. this, is, this is history. So tell me something about how you translated that primary sources into the, into the book I have in front of me. Well, what I decided, I conceived of this book as a, as a kind of fusion of biography, espionage thriller, and scholarly detective story. And so because I had written two works of fiction before, I had the inclination that I wanted this to, as you say, for it to read like a novel. I wanted there to be, uh, it to be accessible to people as a story and also as history. And so in order to accomplish my first aim, I decided to write the book in the present tense. I was thinking about newsreels and, and how herky-jerky they are and, and, when the, and they're in black and white. And there's a sense that when we look at newsreels of, of the Second World War, there is a kind of distance that is imposed on us when, when we see these technological glitches. And, it, and what we're watching doesn't feel fresh or relevant to us. And so I didn't want to have that sense in my book. I wanted it to be just the opposite for it to feel urgent and timely. And I believed very strongly that we need a history lesson right now and, and that it is important to understand that democracy can be fragile. And, and indeed in, in Germany, it was. Germany progressed from a parliamentary democracy to a fascist dictatorship very swiftly uh, after Hitler was appointed chancellor. And I wanted to give readers the sense of being on the streets of Berlin while that happened, just as Mildred was. You know, she moved to Berlin in 1929 to pursue a PhD. So she was an American graduate student there. And she, as an American, witnessed the rise of fascism. Uh, the year before, the Nazi party had received less than 3% of the vote in a Reichstag election in, in Germany's parliament. Two years later, in 1930, the Nazi party received 18% of the vote. And then in 1932, two years later, the Nazi party received 37% of the vote. And for the first time, it was the largest party in the Reichstag. And Mildred was, uh, so she bore witness to the meteoric rise of the popularity of the Nazi party and the popularity of, of Hitler. And, uh, you know, he had lost the presidential election. He ran for president, but he was still very very much a, a, a politician that was drawing you know, hundreds of thousands of people in, uh, you know, the crowds were, uh, were, were very much, um, you know, unmistakably in favor of him. So Mildred, Mildred witnessed the meteoric rise 
in the popularity of the Nazi party and of Hitler himself. And so I, I wanted readers to, to get a very visceral sense of what that felt like. And so by writing the book in the present tense, instead of, you know, typically you hear, uh, you read histories that say she did this, she said that, she saw that. And again, there's that sense of the distancing akin to the, the herky-jerky news, uh, black and white news newsreels. Uh, by putting it in the present tense and also by interspersing it in, in the narrative actual documents from this period, that also accomplished that, that aim for me. I, I decided when I started researching the archives and started touching these documents, actually, it was a very sort of tactile uh, experience. And I thought most biographies feature a an insert in the middle. It's very conventional and you, you can see photographs of people and documents. Um, and, and then the rest of the book is just is just text. But I wanted the reader to experience and, and to uh, get a sense of these documents as they were reading the book. And so I, I peppered the narrative throughout with these with these documents as a way to undergird and authenticate the story and bring it to vivid life. And so you'll see in my book, uh, for example, a an espionage file that Stalin scrawled across uh, a, a profanity actually across. Um, and, uh, and when he was incensed that the intelligence that Mildred's husband, Arvid Harnock, and his co-conspirator, Haru Schulze-Voisen, had brought to him, indicating that Hitler was just about to invade the Soviet Union, and he was making preparations, uh, and, and, you know, to basically to the contrary of everything he was telling Stalin and the rest of the world. Um, at this time, they had, a, of course, a pact. And, and Stalin was so incensed, he thought that Arvid and Haro were deceiving him. And so he scrawled this obscenity across this intelligence document. Well, I obtained that document in a Moscow archive. And, and so a photograph of that, for example, is in my book. A photograph of the secret notes that were passed in prison. Germans have a word for this, Kassiber. I have uh, photographs of, of those notes in my book. The women who were incarcerated after the Gestapo arrested many members of the group, um, they, they were thrown into prisons and they were pro- basically prohibited from talking with one another. So they wrote these notes as a way to spread news, um, to warn each other about various prison guards, to alert um, their co-conspirators about the interrogations that were taking place. And um, there was a mass treason trial. And and so this is, I discovered these in a German archive. And then I have snippets of diaries and letters and photographs and memos, declassified memos. Some of them are still classified and you can see the redaction, the big black blotches. So in this way, this is how I I conceived of this as as a kind of scholarly detective story as well, because I'm leading the reader alongside, you know, by the hand and and, and bringing the reader alongside me as I write this book. And so I I involve the the reader in in the process of, of excavation. So let's say something about Mildred's life in America before Germany. So we we first start the book, she's a young girl growing up in in America, up to her meeting with Arvin, who will become her husband. Tell us something about who she was before she moves to Germany. She was born in 1902 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her mother was a suffragette. Her her father was a frequently unemployed insurance salesman slash butcher slash horse trader and um, frequently could not make the rent. And so they moved around quite a bit. So Mildred had a rather impoverished childhood. They lived in boarding houses. And uh, often she didn't get enough to eat. I have letters uh, uh, written by her mother to various family members bemoaning this fact. 
And yet at the same time, she was incredibly inspired by the progressive movement in Wisconsin. Women's rights were a very much a topic of discussion. And uh, this was, um, you know, Wisconsin was, was the first uh, state to ratify the uh, amendment giving women the right to vote. So, so it was a very much a focal point for Mildred and also workers' rights. Uh, these, were, these were all very uh, much discussed in a political group that she joined when she um, was enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And so uh, there was a group called the Friday Nighters, and there was a sort of fizzy, feisty group of socialist, socialists, communists, self-proclaimed progressives. And, and so this was really her first taste of, of the kind of radicalism that, that she would then basically bring the, the ideologies that she would bring along with her when she went to Germany. She, as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, met a German graduate student who was uh, basically researching uh, American labor unions. He too was inspired by some of the progressive ideology that was being promulgated in Wisconsin and, and, and specifically at the at the university. And so um, they met, swiftly fell in love and got married. And decided that they would become academics and teach in German and, and American universities and lead a quiet life. Um, and of course, that, that did not happen at all. Mildred moved to join him in, um, in Germany in 1929, and she enrolled in the University of Gießen, and she began lecturing at the University of Berlin, lecturing about American and English literature. And she was appalled by the swastikas that she saw everywhere. And she was appalled that at the University of Gießen, about 50% of the students were members of a Nazi fraternity. And so in 1932, she and Arvid began to hold informal meetings in the apartment where they lived in Berlin. And she invited friends and friends of friends and she also invited students, the, the students where she taught at the University of Berlin and, and later at a, at a German night school for adults for blue collar and unemployed Germans became a, a pool of recruits for her. And, and, and in fact, some of her most loyal recruits, one of the, some of the most loyal members of, of her group were uh, recruits from this school. They were later given code names armless beamer worker and and some of them became involved as she and Arvid did in espionage essentially to undermine Hitler by passing top secret information about his operational and military strategies to his enemies and and so uh, meaning the Soviet Union and also the United States. So as you said in the in the early 30s they're both working as academics and teaching they both eventually lose those jobs as well actually she was she was not Arvid could not get an, an academic job in part because his his dissertation was on a very um, leftist topic that would brand him as a as a social democrat or even a communist and so um, and and would expose him to arrest after Hitler became chancellor. In fact, his dissertation advisor was actually, um, his offices were raided and he narrowly escaped being imprisoned. So, so Arvid actually burned this book and, and he had another book that then Mildred handed over to someone to hide. It pained her to think that he had worked so hard on it. And so she, she gave it to somebody um, at the American church in Berlin, who then hid it in the rafters uh, for a while and then took it back with her uh, to the United States when they fled Germany. And so 
Arvid had to keep a really low profile. Mildred was actually fired from the University of Berlin for her candor in expressing her political viewpoints. And, and she was quite frank in her criticism of the Nazi party and of Hitler. And so, and, and, and this, was, this was still though before Hitler became chancellor in 1932, in the fall of 1932, she began teaching at this night school for adults. And uh, as I mentioned, this was where she found a lot of her recruits and, and, and the, the, her students were working class, blue collar, precisely the, precisely the class that, that the Nazi party was targeting relentlessly with propaganda. Then in 1933, January 30th, Hitler was appointed chancellor and uh, suddenly everything changed. Uh, Mildred had to be uh, exceedingly careful about who she recruited. Uh, she risked arrest, of course, if she tried to recruit the wrong person. And so Mildred was aware of the pronounced risk that she took in recruiting Germans into the resistance, but she did not stop. She just became a lot more careful. Often she would lend a book to someone and then ask them what they thought about the book. And this would reveal to her their political views. And then she would undertake a kind of Socratic questioning in order to elicit this person's true beliefs. And if, uh, if, then over the course of many meetings, she felt safe enough to assume that this person had similar sensibilities, then, then she would invite them to join the group. The first weapon that they had against the Nazi regime was paper. They would uh, make leaflets um, that criticized the Nazi regime and called for revolution. And it may seem rather mild to us to hear that leaflets were their tools of revolution and, and resistance, but um, really it was also an exceedingly dangerous undertaking. It was illegal to write, produce, distribute, or be even caught with a leaflet. And if you were, you could be arrested and sent to a concentration camp, which is indeed what happened to several of Mildred's recruits and where they languished for a year. And after they were let out, they came right back to the group and continued their activism, which is quite extraordinary to consider just the, the, the degree of, of courage and commitment that, that some people in this group had. It was a diverse group. They were Jews, they were Catholics, they were atheists, um, they were factory workers and students and professors. They were uh, men and women, 40% of the group was women. And over the course of eight years, from 1932 to 1940, this group, which Mildred privately nicknamed the Circle, would intersect with at least three other groups, Tatkreis, Rittmeisterkreis, and Gegnerkreis. And by 1940, it was the largest underground resistance group in Berlin. In 1935, they decided to change their strategy. Uh, paper was a poor weapon against a fascist dictator. And, and, and this time it also became painfully obvious that Hitler wasn't going anywhere. And uh, so they needed to try a more subversive method and effective method of uh, undermining his regime and defeating him. And so Arvid got a job at the Ministry of Economics and posed as a loyal Nazi in order to gain access to top secret documents. And his intention was to pass these documents to the Soviet embassy, which he did. And then after basically Stalin's purges uh, and seven out of nine people at the embassy uh, were, were executed, Arvid lost his contacts there. And, and it was around this time that Mildred made contact with a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin who had a covert arrangement with State Department officials um, in Washington, D.C. to obtain intelligence uh, about Hitler's strategies. And, and so Mildred had an arrangement with this diplomat. His name was Donald Heath Sr. Um, to 
use his son, his 11-year-old son, as a courier. And his son would show up twice a week at her apartment between 1939 and 1941, ostensibly for tutoring sessions in American and English literature. And at the end of these sessions, she would slip a note into his knapsack, which he would then take to his father. And often what was on the note was information about where they could meet so they could exchange information verbally uh, away from Gestapo surveillance. And I tracked him down uh, when he was 89 years old and interviewed him, meaning that the little boy, now 89, Don Heath Jr. I interviewed him extensively. And then after he passed away, his family gave me access to 12 steamer trunks of documents that contained just an absolute treasure uh, of primary source materials, including his mother's diaries and confidential memos about between Donald Heath Sr. and Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of Treasury, uh, Cordell Hull, um, Secretary of State. Anyway, uh, and, and also um, unpublished memoirs by Donald Heath Jr. and Donald Heath Sr., um, date books, uh, you know, everything I could have hoped for to corroborate the story that Donald Heath Jr. told me on the eve of his 90th birthday. Yellow City Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rebecca Donner and we're talking about her book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, the true story of the woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler. When Donald Jr. is is first introduced, I was really struck by, I mean, it's, it's sort of difficult to look back on this time with today's eyes, but it seemed incredible to me that Donald Reed Heath Sr. would have used this young boy yes this most incredibly dangerous occupation tell us something about what don jr did then in his work as a courier oh yes well and actually this is a question that i am also often asked by readers how did donald heath's Junior's parents, were they aware of the dangers that they were putting their son in? And when I interviewed Don, I, I asked him this question. The question actually made him a bit uncomfortable. I think he, he was aware of the danger. Uh, he knew that his parents wanted to um, and believed in the resistance and wanted to help out the resistance. But he was also painfully aware that he was in a very vulnerable position. And that his parents, uh, he was also painfully aware that his parents were naive. In his words, uh, he said, they believed that they were exempt somehow. And his father was a diplomat. And and if something were to happen, he would be able to talk his way out of it. And, And that was indeed rather naive. Fortunately, Donald Heath Jr. was never caught. And I think he was he was able to kind of fly under the radar. He was this adorable, freckle-faced little boy who would, uh, his father basically instructed him to go to Mildred's apartment and to take different 
uh, routes there. He would take the U-Bahn and get off at various stops. And sometimes he would take a detour and go up to the top of the American church in Berlin and look down and, and sort of survey the landscape and see if anybody was waiting for him. Um, sometimes he would go into the Cadeve department store and climb the stairs and go out a different exit. And, and really, he was in his own Le Carre novel, um, you might say. His father taught him to look at the reflections in, in the windows of the department store to also see if somebody was following him and never to talk to anyone. And when he arrived at Mildred's apartment, then Mildred would question him. Have you talked to anybody? What route did you take? So they did take precautions. And uh, But this whole experience made an indelible impression on him. He also felt, as he told me, that he was able to make a contribution and he felt very proud of that. And so uh, he would also act as a lookout when Mildred and Arvid would meet with members of the resistance and, uh, and or his, uh, his parents. He would run around. Uh, he actually got a, a uh, Hitler youth uniform that his friend, he was in a boy gang um, that his friend stole for him. And, and so he even sort of costumed himself appropriately. Uh, his parents did not approve of this, uh, but, but he would wear this, this Hitler youth uniform to sort of believing that he would escape Gestapo attention that way. And so then he would whistle if he saw somebody following Mildred or Arvid when, when they were with their colleagues in the resistance or his, his parents. And often his parents would meet Mildred and Arvid for a picnic or a hike in the Spreewald. And what would seem like a, a very benign social occasion was indeed uh, an occasion to pass top secret intelligence to the United States government. You mentioned, you know, how, him having to having to avoid the attentions of the Gestapo, and there's a point in the book where you know the Gestapo has been created, it's it's grown, and there's a point in the book where you list all of the many different types, the different designations of informers. Yes, Gestapo has. They all have different names. So tell us something about you know just what this atmosphere would have been like for people, even not even subversively going out and handing leaflets out, but just you know just going about their daily life under the watchful eye of their not just the you know the secret police, but their neighbours. Uh, yes, well, th- there were informers everywhere, and uh, and you never knew whether uh, somebody was your neighbour. Um, whether, whether it was the person at the flower shop, or whether it was the person who, um, who she met at the American Women's Club in Berlin. So, you know, some, sometimes there, there was the fear that there were people from other countries working as informers, uh, not just Germans. And so, yes, uh, the, the Gestapo's distinguished between at least five different types of informers. A truth man, an informer, an opponent man, a reliable person, an information man. And uh, at the top of this hierarchy were these elite informers, which were known as men of confidence um, and, and were designated with a V and an M in Gestapo reports. And they were paid Gestapo spies. And often they would masquerade as Hitler's enemies. Um, so in the language of espionage, they were moles. And the most skillful of these moles would penetrate resistance groups in their core, befriend its members, earn their trust learned their secrets and reported all the Gestapo. And in fact, there's some indication that there was a mole in their group. At least several of the survivors who were not executed believed this. And, and who knows how, how long that was indeed true, how long that mole or those moles were around. It very well could have been you know, people who were members of the group dating from the early to mid-30s. 
Mildred was aware that that as the wife of an official at the Ministry of Economics who was posing as a loyal Nazi, she too had to pose as a loyal Nazi. And she too had to be very careful about what she said and to whom she said it. And so it's when she would write letters to her mother. And I, again, I have those letters. uh, You can, it's very clear that she would often write in a kind of code in order to avoid any uh, censors from from discovering her true meaning. Um, And other members of the group did this as well, and other family members did as well. Arvid Harnock was actually related to a network of families um, through marriage that were deeply involved in the the German resistance. Several of his, uh, a number of his cousins were involved in the 1944 Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler, um, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is probably the most uh, well-known. And so the family members who did survive wrote memoirs and and talked about the kinds of, of codes that they used to communicate they were careful about answering the front door. Uh, a certain number of knocks, they would decide, would indicate who it was. They would have expressions like, now I have to go to prayer. And, and that meant that you were going to listen to an illegal foreign broadcast. At that point, if you listen to the BBC uh, in 1939, that was a crime that was punishable by execution. And uh, so this was uh, something that Mildred continued to do and other members of the group continued to do. This is the only way they could obtain news that, that uh, outside Germany's borders. And, um, but it was an exceedingly dangerous undertaking. If you said she is in the hospital, it meant that she has been arrested. If you say your cousin has gone on a trip, it means that your cousin has been thrown into a concentration camp. And they also, they took great care to prepare members of the family in case they were arrested, people who were involved in these groups. In case they were arrested, they would devise ways of communicating. And so they practiced writing very small uh, notes on little bits of paper, and then those bits of paper could be concealed and passed uh, back and forth. One thing that it must be remembered that when members of the resistance were incarcerated, uh, Mildred Harnock was put into solitary confinement. Other members were not, and they were allowed to receive books and even food uh, from families. And Arvid was one of the people who who was given these privileges. And also uh, prisons saved money by requiring the families of those incarcerated to do their laundry. And so this became a very effective way of passing notes back and forth between the incarcerated and the family outside. Uh, They would sew the notes in the seams of their garments. And when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, was arrested, he also employed some of these methods to communicate with members of the resistance who had not been incarcerated. And family members would essentially pass messages back and forth. It's not giving anything away. Indeed, it's mentioned on the, the flyleaf of the book that, you know, eventually both Arvind and, and Mildred are arrested and executed in a differently grotesque ways. Yes. And... um. One thing I was absolutely not aware of and stunned by is an, an even more grotesque coda to um, to Mildred's execution is this Dr. Herman Steves. Tell us yeah. something about him. Yes. Well, he was, uh, Herman Steve was the chairman of the anatomical department at the University of Berlin, had a, an arrangement with the director of Plottensee Prison in Berlin to deliver the headless bodies of women in this underground resistance group, Mildred Harnock included. Uh, And he would use these bodies 
to um, research the effect of acute stress on the reproductive organs of women. And he published numerous papers uh, about this um, and about his findings. And he kept a list. And uh, Mildred was number 84 on the list. Um, There were women as young as 22 on the list. And I found this list uh, in a German archive. There were 182 names on this list. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's actually the microscopic remains of the women who were on this list of several of the women were just recently discovered. And so this story keeps on, we, we keep on making more discoveries about this story. Uh, the Guardian ran an article about this and the microscopic remains were given a proper burial. But I think people are often astonished to learn that Mildred and these other women were decapitated by guillotine. The men in their group were either hanged or shot. Members of the resistance in other groups, uh, men and women, were beheaded uh, in 1943. So this was just a distinction that was made with this group. Just to finish it off then, and if if we can finish it off, if it's such a thing on a on a slightly slightly lighter note... <laughs> Um, you mentioned earlier that Irvin's doctoral dissertation, his, his second book, survived him. And indeed, there are other documents, at least a Goethe translation that Mildred was was working on, that the um, that the title of the book comes from. But even more significantly, perhaps, Irvin's last letter to Mildred. Oh yes, for his execution, survived the war, had this most incredible journey to the end of the war. Just tell us briefly about that letter. While Mildred was incarcerated, as I mentioned earlier, she was held in solitary confinement for three and a half months. And during this time, she was not permitted to write a letter, read a book, and in any way communicate. Then she walked into a courtroom in December 1942, and the first trial was held. Uh, It was the first time she saw Arvid uh, for three and a half months, and she was given a lighter sentence than than he was and that others were. Um, She was given six years in prison, and Arvid and others were given the death penalty. Right before Arvid was executed, he wrote this gorgeous letter to her and had it smuggled into her prison cell. And I provide a a photograph of this letter. And it's a a testament to their love and their absolute dedication to their acts of resistance. And and it's a a stunning letter. And I think that I have readers write to me and say that they can't read it without weeping. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very uplifting letter. And and also, I should say, because that there's, you know, he basically says, I I'm not sorry for what I have done. I, I have lived a good life um, and I, I have no regrets. And this is in part because of the love that we share. So this story is not only an espionage thriller and a tale of, of political resistance, but it's also a love story. Mildred read the letter countless times. Her cellmate observed this and Mildred gave this, this letter to Gertrude and said, please give this back to the family if you survive. Uh, Gertrude was transferred to Ravensbrück concentration camp and she miraculously survived. And in 1952, she wrote a letter to Arvid's mother and then wrote another letter to Arvid's mother and enclosed this letter. So this is the reason why we have this letter today. And it's also the reason we know a bit about what Mildred's life was like in prison, because for one month, Gertrude Klapith shared that prison cell with her. 
I have to say that when I narrated the audiobook, um, which was an excruciatingly meticulous process that took place over two weeks, by the time we got to the to the letter, I had to they had to take about 20 takes because I had my, my throat kept clenching up. I was so moved by this letter. And of course I've read it hundreds and hundreds of times, but even I could not fail to be moved by it despite how many times I've read it. It's really an extraordinary document. Um, People often ask me, what is the title? Why did you choose such a long title? All the frequent troubles of our days. And um, admittedly it is a long title, uh, but I believe that it was very apt uh, and conveyed the thematics of this book. And also, it, it also tells a story. It is the line of a poem that Mildred was translating in her prison cell shortly before she was executed. Uh, a prison chaplain by the name of Harald Pulschau, who was secretly in the resistance, visited her in her prison cell on the last day of her life and saw her bent over a book of Goethe poems which had been smuggled into her cell. She held in her hand a pencil stub and she was scribbling in the margins, English translations of these German poems. And all the frequent troubles of our days is is the first line of one of these poems. Harald Pulschau smuggled that book out of prison in the folds of his robe. And this is why we have this book today. And I found it in a German archive and I feature in my book a photograph of uh, two pages of this book, including one that features the poem that begins all the frequent troubles of our days. So I've been talking to Rebecca Donner. We've been talking about her book, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, the true story of the woman at the heart of the German resistance to Hitler, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Rebecca, thank you so much for sharing Mildred's story with us. Neil, thank you so much for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit